On this uh, edition of Different Matters, I interview former MP Gareth Hughes. Gareth has written a book about his friend and colleague Jeanette Fitzsimmons, who was born in 1945 and was one of the seminal political figures on the environmental movement in New Zealand. We talk about Jeanette's early life, what drove her to radicalism, the limits to growth and and other philosophical ideas that drove her, a little bit about her personal life, and her interaction, her election to parliament, her running in with Jim Anderton and Helen Clark and John Key. It's an excellent and well-researched book, and it's interesting talking to Gareth Hughes, who, who knew Jeanette, spent time with her, and actually inherited her seat when Jeanette left office. Uh, ran a little bit over time, as um, it's my podcast, I can do what I like. I certainly enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you do too. I'm here with Gareth Hughes. Gareth is a former Green Party politician, and we're here to talk about A Gentle Radical, the life and times of Jeanette Fitzsimmons. Gareth, you actually succeeded Fitzsimmons, and when she retired, you took her seat on the list. Yeah, that's right, in 2010. So I just missed out on election night 2008. I got a call uh, the next year saying, hey, mate, Sorry, you are actually going to go to Parliament. Uh, Jeanette's going to announce her retirement soon and you'll be going to Parliament in about six months. So it was quite a shock. <laughs> a good shock. A good shock. And I mean, the sort of the, the analogy is these like giant sandals I was trying to fit my feet into. <laughs> You've written a book. Uh, is this your first book? Yes. I think it is, yeah. The, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Fitzsimmons in a second. But why, two questions, why write the book and what was your relationship with her? How did you, how, how did you know her? Because you got a couple of pictures in there with her, so you obviously knew her. So how, how well did you know her before you entered Parliament and, and, and after she left? Well, maybe I'll start with why I wrote a book. So I'd end up serving more than 10 years in Parliament, and by the end of my career I was tired, burnt out, cynical, and was sort so of it's affecting. appalling. You, you look about 25. <laughs> I don't know how you did 10 years, but anyway, never mind. Well, I've definitely got more grey hair. But I sort of was reflecting at the end of my career, not really sure what I was going to do next, but knowing that I sort of needed a bit of a break. And I sort of reflected, what did I enjoy most about being a politician? Yes. And it was actually the ability to, to be involved in the world, find out interesting information and try and communicate really complicated ideas. So I thought I had about three different ideas for books that I was going to... Um, do the plan was to buy a boat and to go sailing around the world and I was going to you know write uh, take a bit of a holiday then the lockdown happened and did you, you have a couple of children yeah two teenage kids now yeah um, you've got the, teenage this is why I hate young people yes anyway go um, on. and then you know the, the, the borders all locked down and we couldn't go traveling uh-huh. and we ended up moving to a conservation island and living there and so I basically took six months off to write a book and I yeah. had different ideas but just before the first lockdown Jeanette suddenly passed away I had you know, enjoyed a night drinking with her just a week before and yeah, plotting and scheming about the future. And um, I sort of knew then that that was the book I had to write because she had played such a big role in my life and was, I think, a pivotal political figure in our country's life that it was kind of, I didn't know if anyone else was going to do it. So I thought someone had to do it and maybe that was me. And, uh, and, and, and you did. It's, uh, it is an interesting book. 
I first saw her in 99 when I was an 18-year-old. That was the first yes. time I could vote. And that was when, you know, she basically got the Greens into Parliament on her back, on her shoulders. So I'd seen her from afar. I then had a career at Greenpeace after university. And through a contact there, I ended up applying for a job with her. Um, the sort of frantic interview at the Coru Lounge at Auckland Airport. Oh, I, lo- I love that story. I mean, the, the idea of two progressive lefties having having an interview in the in the, in the Coru Lounge, but you didn't get that job, but you got another no, one. No, but, but this was how she organised her life. Like, literally every minute of her day was diaried. So, yeah, if she was in a, in, a, in a taxi between meetings, there were meetings scheduled that she could have on the phone between wow. car rides. So she'd schedule me for the window before she was boarding a flight. Yeah, I, I missed out on the job, which was... How like, did you get in? Were you on a separate flight? How did you get into the Coru Lounge? Oh, she... Yeah, Know, met me at the door, and you could bring guests in back then who weren't flying. I think it was a lot more liberal the around <laughs> then. Frick. But um, okay. yeah, I, so I, I didn't get the job, and which was you know basically organising her diary in Parliament. But she did, you know, maybe a week or two later, say, "I've got a different job for you," which is working on climate change, which was right up my alley, and that's how I started working for her. And I ended up working for her and Sue Kidgley uh, for two years. So let's let's talk a little bit about. Jeanette, the, the, the early years, which are quite interesting. She was born in 1945, and you write in the book it was a, it was, <laughs> it was a pivotal year, um, and it was. Um, she was born in the South Island, but grew up um, around the Glenbrook. Um, you describe her as shy, intelligent. But then she was sent as a boarder to Epson Girls Grammar at the age of about 15. Is that right? Yes. That must have had... An impact, and it, it sounds like the early years weren't a lot of fun because she was a bit of an outsider. Epson Girls, I imagine, is a bit of a prissy, hierarchical place. Her clothes were not obviously not those of her contemporaries. What do we know of that time? There, there's you, you mentioned a couple of her friends who go on to serious roles and become privacy commissioners and get gongs and so forth. But what was that like for her? Her father was a teacher and her mother yes. was very intelligent and you know, education I think was highly prided in the family so there was that sort of expectation for her and I think that it was an educational decision. She had to go you know, out of the hometown to, to get a, a high quality education. But you're right, you know, this was the, the school of sort of the elites in Auckland, you know, yes. doctors and, and, and lawyers' children. And she was a real outsider, you know. It was was Epson, did they have to pay? How, how did she get in? Uh, it was a... I believe it was a private school. Um, because it was at Jack and Doris, they didn't sound like they had a significant income. Well, I guess at this stage he was a senior teacher, but teachers, well, back then teachers made as much, about as much as politicians, which is kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> okay. They were, you know, a lot less paid back then. Um, look, I, I don't know what the, the fees were at the time, but, it, you know, it was a prestigious school. and. Yep. You know, she had come from a very frugal family where homemade clothes, which sort of jarred with some of the other fashion choices of the girls. But also, you know, teenagers are teenagers and they're interested in culture. Where she was interested in, you know, politics and, and classical music and uh, she and was an outsider. And violin. Violin. Look, music played a huge part in her life. Yeah. And I think that, that came from her mother, who had a real passion for it. But it was fun learning about the story that, you know, she was passionate about the violin, but her father didn't want her to play it. Coming from sort of an Irish background, it was, I think it was described as, you know, what plays in beer halls with, with fiddlers and, and, you know, dancers. So she had to battle to, to, to get to be able to play the violin and then, you know, obviously studied that at university and was quite professionally accomplished. 
Well, her relationship with her father is is interesting. We'll come to that in, in, in a little bit more. But she finishes there, um, and then we come to we come to you know what does she study at university? Uh, and her father had some pretty strong views on what she should study. She was thinking about law, but he wasn't a fan of that. No, and I guess you know this is. I mean, I had you know tensions with my parents about what to study and you know uh-huh. it was probably quite a, a normal thing but you know her passion was music and that's what she wanted to study and she and and, and she stuck with it uh um, but there was there was also a tragedy as well because uh an early partner was it meriwether died um james and meriwether drowned in 1965 so it sounds like it was a it was um, um, reasonably tough going, but let's let's move on to to Bevan because this is really interesting. So they met again through music, from the sounds of it. She was nineteen, he was twenty five. You write in the book about the hoops she made him go through. Just talk us through that. Well. It was clearly a, a you know a, a romantic relationship, um, kind of an, an odd couple, uh, and, but connected through the choir. Um, yes, the, the church played a bigger role in society and, and in their lives, and was an area that they could meet. But it was funny, you know, she was such a in her brain person that even when he proposed to her, she um, you know didn't immediately reply and basically no. wanted you know six months to to give the answer. She finally said yes. But she did. Did she ever speak about that? Because that's I find. But I mean, but he he stuck around. He obviously saw. Yep. All right. I'm 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 going to stick around for this. And that that was a. I I I found that interesting because it it I think potentially plays into some of the other aspects and the decisions that um, her life kicked in. Well, as you see in the photos in the book, you know, a stunningly beautiful young woman, uh, you know, phenomenally intelligent. Um, so I can see, um, you know, Bevan's uh, attraction at that time. Um, but again, you know, this was a different time in New Zealand's culture where, you know, you, you, you wooed someone and there was longer engagement, you know. It's interesting to work out how the past is really a different sort of country. Um, yes. And the interesting thing for me personally, having, you know, known Jeanette for more than 20 years and, you know, working closely with her is she never talked about her personal life at all. So I've had to recreate all of this from conversations yeah. with brothers and partners and people who knew her. She was always so focused on her work that, look, I can't recall actually having a personal conversation with her. And it's a regret of mine that maybe I should have asked more questions like that. And it's a reminder, too, that we should be asking people that, you know, we love more about their history. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's um, possible that she didn't want to because she, it was obviously not something that she wanted to, which, I mean, it, fair enough. The um, I think the age difference is, is is kind of interesting. I think the fact that she she made him wait six months. We were talking before. There's a there's a photo in your book uh, of her at I think it was a values party meeting, and there is a um, a steely not just uh, well uh, interested, but not. We were contrasting that to some of the contemporary politicians who are very aware of their public image. Um, you see in that in, in that photo a, a steeliness that um, that I know was it steel magnolias is what Donald called her. I, I think you see it all the way back then. What do we know about her travels to Europe? Because her and Devon decide they leave the country and they disappear. 
they travel Eastern Europe. They just miss out on the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. Devon was working for the church. What do we know about that that time? We'll come to the letters from Corsica in a minute, because that's interesting too. But what do we what do we know of that of that of that time? Well, it was it was a young woman who had grown up, you know, in provincial New Zealand, then had her formative teenage years in Auckland. But it was really a, a young woman, you know, on the world stage, and the world sort of opened up before her. So, and a young married woman too. A young married. That's that's what there wasn't an OE in the traditional sense. You go off and see the world on your own. She went there with her slightly older husband. Well, I I get the sense that was sort of the OE structure for that generation. You know, often as a couple, I mean, my parents did something similar. You know, bought a van and trundled around you know Europe together yeah um, but they you know first went to the UK had some sort of dire boarding experiences <laughs> with terrible housing and but then I, I got a, a series of letters that she wrote back to her best friends in New Zealand and you sort of get the sense of a young woman with her sort of eyes bulging as sort of having these experiences so talking to students in the UK you know young primary kids who you know th- wondered about kangaroos in New Zealand and got us confused with Australia um, you know, having all these sort of experiences and even docking at South Africa or Sydney on the Well, because they took ship. a boat. That's right. Like yep. six weeks on a, yeah. It's, yeah. And you, you get the sense of the exclamation marks in her letters and she was clearly so excited and it was, you know, so um, inspiring for her just to have all these new experiences. But then they, they, they did drive around um, Europe. I think it's interesting they went to Eastern Europe. I don't know did if that you, was particularly common. Was there um, uh, any commentary? Did you find any, have you any conversations with her about that experience? Any letters about what she saw and how she thought about that? No, only her letters that she wrote at the time. You know, She just didn't talk about her history. Well, not with me. Um, it was always sort of focused on work and, and Issues and, and, and but were, were her letters back? Did she write about what she saw in in, in Eastern Europe and the and, and the system that was running there? No, it was only a few lines about how she did note the difference between the unhappiness and sort of the grim faces of people in Russia versus yes. Eastern Europe, which you know that was a, a slightly more prosperous area than than Russia at, at that time. Well, I think you were writing the book. It was. Um, Czechoslovakia she was writing about specifically and that was under Dutchek immediately within months of the the tanks coming in so I think yeah I do wonder whether that would be what she actually thought about that would be an interesting conversation but it's interesting they didn't you know just do the normal pull pints in London and then come home you know he ended up applying for a job with the ecumenical loan fund which was basically uh, investment and aid for the developing world so they ended up moving to Vienna Sorry, Geneva, Geneva. In, in, in Switzerland, which you know is a pretty uncommon place. Um, language challenges, and um, for, for her to, to relocate here in Bevan and then start a family. It's an interesting bit of a digression. Um, if you should read Don Brash's autobiography, there's there's vague parallels between Brash's life and Fitzsimmons' life. Um, uh, because his father worked for the World Council of Churches, and there's a there's an almost an overlap. I think when Bevan left, um, Don Brash's father was coming in. They both did work for Muldoon, uh, for uh, Kirk and Muldoon, writing uh, position papers, and there was a, there was a vague similarity, and they both entered into to, to politics. Um, it was it's 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 a weird symmetry um, in their lives, which is kind of. But also with other sort of contemporary politicians of her generation, you know. 
becoming teachers was a, a bit of a path for, for some was a pathway in, into politics for, for Jim Anderton who you know she spent much of her career clashing swords with or working with you know he came from a you know, radical Catholic background so the church and education are these sort of pillars. primary drivers two interesting things the Club of Rome limits to growth this is a terrible terrible <laughs> that I understand your views and mine differ uh, she read the book a lot of people read the book at that time, uh, and she liked it. And that's that that seemed to be part of what pushed her in the direction where she ended up going. And at the same time, we've got the 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 values party kicking around. You write in the early years. Her father was not very comfortable about her going into law. He seemed to have some traditional views on marriage and so forth good solid views I should say but he came around so talk about the letters that he wrote to her while she was in Corsica sitting on the beach reading letters from dad well he came around on the violin as well and you know they got the the family violin uh, shipped on the trains across the country so sure he had his views but he was also you know, flexible and, and, and would come around and she was a very strong woman who you know did what she wanted to do but you know she'd been living overseas for a while and 1972 you know was this explosion of new thinking and you know in, in retrospect now it's not that common you get a whole new sort of political ideology come around and yes. you can trace sort of the green movement environmental movement to this pivotal year there was the ecologist blueprint for survival the club of Rome limits to growth mm-hmm. and clearly she was interested because her father you know wrote this wonderful letter to her while she was on holiday in Corsica pointing out that in New Zealand there were these sort of funny new parties <sighs> popping up there was a candidate who changed his name by deed poll to Mickey Mouse and found a wonderful microfiche of the New York Times uh, story on, on New Zealand as a bit of a joke. And again, there was this values party, which was seen as a bit of a joke. And that was a fascinating story, the, the, the story of this sort of radical, radical experimental insurgent party, which formed and um, she wasn't involved. Before I started this project, I thought she had been intimately involved in the formation of values. I didn't realise that it was much later on she became involved. She was an, an early member uh, mm. from across the ditch, but it was basically because of her father writing to her saying, hey, there's all this weird stuff happening to, in New Zealand, but you might be interested in this values party uh, thing. You know, they're talking about some of the issues you're interested in. So I, I, like, uh, I like that story because it, 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 that, it flashes out her father a little bit as well and, 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 and their relationship. So obviously... No, he was a National Party voter. He had traditional views on, on uh, marriage and women or whatever. But nonetheless, you know, that's his daughter's doing. He said, well, okay, all right. I, I don't think I necessarily agree with that, but this is something that you might like. And, and I, think that, um, I, think that speaks, I think that speaks very well of him. Um, I also thought it was interesting they were running off having Caribbean holidays. And I was thinking, does the World Council of Churches pay that well? <laughs> Caribbean holidays. What the what the hell's going on? The let's talk a little bit about Values Party. The because your book isn't just a book about Fitzsimmons. Uh, it's also a, you use her as a as a means to to dive into some of the early environmentalist movements. Uh, the Values Party. I didn't know this. They're originally going to be called the Youth Party. Yes. Yep. <laughs> And it, I mean, it literally came about as a result of a, of a bet. You know, um, 
it was a debate in, in, in school whether there was space in the market for a new party talking about these newfangled things about the environment and limits to growth and, you know, sort of... It was interesting talking to people involved in this stage. They called Labour and National the concrete parties because, sure, they had their differences in, you know, politics and ideology, but they both wholeheartedly agreed their raison d'etre was pouring more concrete. You know, their job was development, economic yes. growth, pouring more concrete, be it dams or, or highways, whereas this was a whole new idea, which was almost a rejection of sort of cities and, 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 and development. It was... Um, you know, a fascinating period of time that people, you know, went to, to hippie communes and you know, even the government was set up an OHU scheme for, for, for communes. But there was this Ooh. debate in school whether it would it, whether there was space in the market and um, obviously there was. Well, no, there, there, there was. And because some, the, some of the votes that these, the, in, in, the, in the pre-MMP um, era is quite impressive. Tony Blunt, so he was the gentleman that you write is, is kind of predominantly responsible for, for kicking this thing off. And there's a, there's a wonderful story, and I, I like this. There was a meeting at Victoria University, and uh, some gentleman stands up there to Blunt and says, you've got no members, you've got no resources, you've got no profile, you've got no reputation. Is there anyone anyone here tonight who is willing to help Tony start this party? And obviously the idea was known. And some guy called Sir David Parkin says, yeah, 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 I'll, 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 I'll do it. And, that, and, that, and that's what I'll, it all starts there. Yeah, and I mean, if someone wanted to buy the movie rights, there would be a wonderful <laughs> scene in a movie, you know, is the, you can hear the sound of a pin drop and this lone hand, and then more hands start rising. Because uh, it was, you know, um, Labour National had dominated our politics forever. It was seen as sort of naive and irrational to even dreaming of starting a new political party. Um, but, you know, clearly there was um, some movement. I, I wasn't able to confirm it in my research, but I believe it was Guy Salmon who might have been that person questioning really? the party who started the Maria Society. Um, but, you know, within six months, this went from a, an idea that, you know, Tony was at a party describing this sort of new political project yeah. he was starting up, and he you know, was talking to a, a young woman and said, I was thinking of calling it the Youth Party, and she rightfully you know, talked some sense into him that a Youth Party name is going to age very fast. <laughs> uh, and, but it is you know, a, a brilliant name they settled on, because what really was different from them to the traditional parties was their, their values. And then we've got the 1972 election, which sounds kind of crucial. This is where a lot of these um, new ages are on term, but uh, these environmental ideas are really coming to the fore. There was, you write a 12-minute um, segment piece on minor parties, uh, and the party was a little bit concerned about being involved, but it, 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 it seemed to have gone well. Uh, and that was a, they got 27,000 votes in 1972, around 2%. That was a did they consider that a good result? Because from, from where I'm sitting now, looking at 2% in a first pass, this, these, these people knew they were wasting their votes. So it was about 2% in 72, and then they rocketed up, I think, to 5% in, in, in 75. One, yeah. I think they were very happy with that because, look, the project had only been around for, for six months and, you know, had started as a bit of a bet. You could sort of describe it as a lark, but it sort of gathered momentum and this this gallery TV show you mentioned I think was pivotal mm. and why you know 
is one of the fundamental reasons why New Zealand had the world's first ecologically focused or the world's first. Well, wow, there was that there was that guy that that crowd in Tasmania. Which, that's but, right. But yeah. we were we were the first. This is like it's like we say we are the first country to give the woman the vote. We ignore South Australia because that's not a country. That's right. We always put the little caveats on the first <laughs> national uh, government or level. So you you're right. It was the United Tasmania group uh, did pip the Greens by a few months. Um, but it was this gallery program which was running a bit of a mock feature on these funny little political parties that were the were founding. But Tony came across as sort of described by the people as this wonderfully earnest and articulate young man sort of expressing what a lot of people were thinking at the time but maybe wasn't reflected in the, the national media. And from that it was like lightning struck and, you know, it, it gathered momentum. But why it was but it was, But it was, <coughs> pardon me, the lightning was striking into... A, a, a tinder dry environment, right? This, yes, this, this, yeah. this didn't this didn't happen in isolation. There was a, there was a there was a demand for it. There was a need for it. Something was happening, as you said, f- um, uh, future shock and and limits to growth. This was happening, and this political movement was in some ways, it's you know the primordial soup was it, it was it was there, and it just needed somebody to. to to galvanise it, and I guess Tony was that guy. And this is why, you know, maybe New Zealand was first, and PhD theses have been written about this this question, why was New Zealand and Tasmania first, and there was some link with hydro, electricity and developments, but it was probably more prosaic, the fact that, you know, we had a channel that everyone watched, and if you got on that TV channel, literally the whole country could see your message, so it literally, like tins to dry, you know, the, this, this sheet of flame just spread across the country. We're in, you know, in the States or Europe, you know, it's so diverse and dispersed that it's hard to get that national reach. It is. So, Bevan and Jeanette come back to New Zealand. I want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that she that she does before politics, because it's interesting. The Recycling Collective and the Devonport Borough Council, it sounds silly, but I don't think it is. I think this... So just talk to what happened, because I think that's it's it's interesting. It shows both a commitment to get stuff done, an organisational ability. There was no money in it for her. So what... Yeah, talk about what she did because this is this is really cool. I like the story. And it was you know a passion. So back in Geneva, she had started a recycling scheme and funny finding letters, you know, bemoaning her colleagues putting the wrong products in the wrong bin and <laughs> apple peels in the yogurt pots and make it harder to recycle. But she was obviously interested in this issue of resource recovery and moving back to New Zealand. Devonport had a particularly progressive council elected, so she saw the opportunity, got intimately involved and. As she would, and many times in her career, you know, took on a leadership position, basically, you know, organised things and, and got got the thing working. And it was very pragmatic, you know, literally hands in the muck, you know, sorting th- uh, and putting into piles like bits of machinery or corrugated iron. And she was very proud of that experience. And it was sort of pioneering for, for New Zealand at the time. So, you know, his ability to, to see a problem, get stuck in, find a practical solution, again, maybe why New Zealand was the first Green Party in the world at the national level, they just got on and did it. They didn't wait around for this body of literature and studies and experiments. They just ex- experimented by doing. I'll come back to the at the end because as she, she was left, you, you start the book with a story about her on a, a boat challenging a, um, uh, some... Um, mining craft 
and her attitude is she's she's given up with politics and kind of pretending to direct action, which I think is 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 interesting. The other thing I liked about that recycling collective, apparently, it was it was profitable, and she she was proud of that. And I'm I'm my thinking is she was probably proud of that because it was profitable, it was sustainable, and and it and it would continue without her. It was, would that be a fair? Or am I reading too much into that? No, I think that that's fair. And, you know, she, she was very intellectual, but she wasn't academic or abstract. You know, she wanted things to work in the real world. And, you know, money is a, a real thing in society and, you know, you, you can't wish something to happen. You know, she was very much in that pragmatic school of getting stuff done. Could you also write, she never made a criticism of something without putting up an, an, an alternative. So let's talk about nuclear energy. I until I read this... Tell you, it breaks my heart. But the New Zealand Electricity Department under Muldoon, there was a research on nuclear energy. This is incredible. People should know this. Well, it, it happened decades before. I mean, from the fifties onwards, the government had been considering it and you know looking for mineral, you know, uranium resources in New Zealand. Yeah, that's fantastic. Labor and national governments had you know plans for nuclear power and their sort of long-term energy plans. Jeanette found out about this, and. Darkened Dallas. The, um, this was the half million dollar signature. That what she was after. She oh, got, campaign she got, half million. Yeah. yeah, she got she got Milligan. Just tell us what she did. I love the story. It 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 just yeah. Tell us. Well, tell well, us. This the story. is almost like the story before nuclear free New Zealand and the frigates and you know this is when New Zealand was actively you know, considering nuclear power yes. stations and it got to the point where they were you know picking sites where these were going to be located in the future, sending off people to get educated in the states and nuclear power science. So we're talking we're talking the late seventies at this point, or is it? Well, by this 70s? point, yes. But I mean, yeah. it had taken you know, years of work and, and yeah. preparation. Um, and you know, this was a time of the world where people were concerned about nuclear energy and. You know, again, she got stuck into it in a, in a leadership role, and campaign half million was an idea to to get a petition to to force the government to to cancel the plans. And it was very much, you know, that that grassroots organising. You have telephone trees where you're calling people and and asking to organise. But you know, th this campaign again, like you know, the Values Party sort of skyrocketed in the momentum, and they wanted to f to film an ad for TV, and they even got Spike Milligan to, to record it and. Because it was blocked on the, you know, the, the, the government-run TV channel, they ended up getting much more publicity than what's called the Barbara Streisand effect they would have got otherwise because it wouldn't run. I've got exactly that note, the Streisand effect. Um, but the th and they were ultimately, ultimately successful. They were. And this, this impressed me because would that have happened without her? Oh, I think... Yes, and I think she would never take credit for it either. You know, there was a, a lot of people involved in this. Case. No, but if she, if, she, if she had, if she hasn't said, if she, so, if if she'd stayed in Geneva, would that have happened? Yes, half I, mean. I think so, okay. and I think she would say that too. But what she brought was sort of intellectual heft, and you know, she loved the policy stuff. So that's where she would dive into, you know, preparing reports and and arguments and submissions. And this is about because you, in your book and in, in every one of the chapters, you you start with the population and and the killing curve. Killing curve is probably not that well known. Do you want to give what is what is the killing curve and why does it matter? Well, quite simply, it's the concentration of CO two in the atmosphere in parts per million, 
and there's a you know, difference between the northern and the southern hemisphere. It changes across the seasons as you know the oceans and forests um, sequester it and suck it up. But basically, what you see over time is this relentless increase. And this mm. is what Al Gore found so formative with his doc, you know his career on climate change. This idea that you can physically trace the growth of CO2 and we know from you know, paleo history that there's a clear correlation between temperature and things like sea level rise related to this um, and, and this, New Zealand and this is was all, one of the key sites for, for measuring it too in the southern hemisphere at Bearing Heads and Wellington I, I may be mistaken um, this was Keeling was a scientist and he set up a measuring station in Mount I can't remember the name in Hawaii. And in Mauna Loa, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So he's he's got that one um, that one site, uh, and he was just constantly recording on that site. And you, I've seen the graph; it kind of goes up and down and up and down, but you know, it goes with the seasons. So it constantly goes up, uh, and it's a it's a pretty powerful graph, um, regardless of your your view of these things. Um, so I thought that was. Um, I think it was interesting, and I, I actually like the way you put that in the book as well, because it kind of, it, as it goes up, so does, um, so does her, her career and involvement. Well, you, uh, thanks for picking up on that. I don't think any other reviewer or anyone else picked up on that topic. And what I was trying to demonstrate was, you know, her life was absolutely encompassed, you know, the, the growth of awareness of what was happening to the planet and, you know, with resources and population and everything. And in a, in a sense, you know, as someone who spent my life working on these issues too, it's been a bit of a failure too. We've we've made some progress, but actually this is a story of things getting worse. And across her life, that's why at the end of her career, she wanted to take direct action. She wanted to put her body on the line and get arrested because and things were worse did. than ever. Well, she tried very hard to get arrested on multiple occasions, but I don't know if it was um, the fact that police officers wouldn't arrest this, this wonderful, kindly old grandmother figure. <laughs> Or if she didn't try hard enough. <laughs> All right. So um, we we come up to so 1975, pretty good year for the um, for the Values Party. They got 5.9 percent. They got 5.9 percent in a pre-MMP um, election, which again, so you got five percent of the population, one one voter in twenty, voting for a party that they know is 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 not is not going to get anywhere. There was um, the the split, the fight between Crozier and Kanowski. This is sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. We had the '75 election, we had the '78 election, which okay, all right. Well, she came back for seminar, and that was the first time she was involved, except for being you know, a paying member. She ran in Remuera. Yes, and they were living there at the time. Yes, yep. Um, wonderful photos of her door, door knocking in the book, and yeah, rolling out her child for campaigning activities. Um, they expected this this growth of momentum, two percent, five percent. They were going to you know continue this direction, but it was a dismal failure. The seventy eight collection, the most organised, the most well funded, but I can't recall the vote they got. But it was pretty dismal in a very tight election where a lot of you know former Green voters voted Labour to try and stop Muldoon being re-elected. Well, 
I mean, it was tactical voting, and you can you you can un, you can understand why in a in a, in a pre um, MMP environment it makes sense. And this is where we come to you know your your, your point around Crozier and Tony Kanowski. I mean, this was a party that had a deeply sceptical relationship with leadership, from a single leader, Tony, who founded the party, who basically left after a year and went on to become a successful city councillor, to having you know in the end multiple leaders and co-leaders and trialling all sorts of different leadership models across the evolution and history of the party but but tony came in and you know he was in a similar sense to james shaw as you know the leader were to, you know the, the contemporary greens someone who brought in a sort of a, a seriousness a sort of a, a very aspirational approach and sort of had a message that we're going to professionalize this party and we're going to take power the 78 election was was a, a a, a failure because of the you know the politics and, and split voting, but that unleashed this this chasm in the party. Was there any future in a pre MMP environment for an outsider political party? You know the hurdle to winning a seat in FPP was so high that was this actually a waste of time, or was this an important place to raise issues in a democracy, or should they, as you know Margaret Crozier, who would become you know the, the country's first female political leader? very much focused on sort of local campaigning on, on issues, more of a pressure group or an activist group than a political party. And this fundamental split alongside the politics um, between sort of, I wouldn't say left and right, but maybe um, a traditional left, maybe more socialist. Um, and, and that would be Kanowski. Yes, that's right. And apparently that was quite strong in, in the Canterbury region. Um, that was sort of the hotbed of this, this left wing within the Values Party versus more of a... Um, it definitely wasn't right wing, but it was sort well, of. Well, didn't they have on... a vote? Are we a socialist party? And 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 that and that vote was successful. And then but they the socialist candidate lost. immediately then lost. Yeah, um, and and where was Fitzsimmons in this debate? Well, she was very much in, in in Margaret's camp, which was you know we should focus on you know for want of a better term the bread and butter, which was environmental issues and environmental causes. So you know Margaret was involved in stopping a PVC factory up in North. Jeanette involved in you know, anti think big projects from Muldoon, which was you know fossil fuel dependent. Uh, that was where they thought their focus would go, and she did stick around after the you know the the the, the split within the party, and sort of it must have been quite a grim tragic campaign in 1981 in the back, in the sh- shadow of you know springbok protests and um she got the highest vote of the values party but that would have been cold consolation this sort of shadow of, of the former party well in in, in 81 yes yeah she got 475 votes in remember but she was the the top <laughs> candidate i think uh, yeah well she got she got 1228 um and, and well, it was written but um, but yeah it was it, it was a bit of a but it, it, it does, that debate, I think, kind of foreshadows, well, it's an ongoing struggle, I think, in the environmentalist movement, which we're kind of seeing playing out a little bit more. We'll, we might come to that, that at the end. The, um, we might gloss over this. She, she takes some time off from politics, sorry. She, she, she um, you know, you write an issue about everything comes apart, political life and marriage, various other things. She ends up working in, uh, in, in university for a while. Um, <clears throat> but let's fast forward. She takes nearly a decade out of politics. She comes back in. Uh, and then we have the pivotal 1996 election with the alliance. And so we've now got the Green Party. Well, how, how, does, the, how does the values become the, the Greens? What, what's going on there? 
Oh, well, it's a torturous, confusing, uh, murky process. But basically, the Values Party limps through the 80s through various changes and is a shell of itself. At the 1990 election, you know, on the back of the Rio Earth Summit and sort of this resurgence in environmental thinking, independent Green parties start popping up to contest the local body election. Um, I think there were about 23 at one stage. You know, there was the Nelson Independent Autonomous Greens, and etc., um, and then they come together, uh, similar to the 72 election, in a short lead up to the general election, they all converge to, to contest and they end up getting, I think, 10% of the vote in 1990 with such a short run in. And there's a bit of a process merging the values, which actually at, by this stage had changed their name, sort of noting the popularity of the term green internationally. Yep. And then all these entities merge together. Pivotally, the, the values party joins and Jeanette is one of these key... So the, the Values Parties joins the, the, the Alliance or joins the Greens? So the Greens, which so was basically... So a, do the Greens... Are the Greens a direct descendant of Tony's party? Yes. Right. So there was, there was, a, there was a continuity all the way through. Values actually changes its name. And, and then at some point, Jeanette's tapped on the shoulder. But I think what's crucial is Values had the name... But the energy and the green momentum was absolutely separate from values and it popped up spontaneously across the country. But Jeanette was this crucial glue that spoke to both worlds mm -hmm. and was able to help the, these new green groups popping up be able to use the single name green, which is the continuation of the Values Party. And later on, she writes to the, um, I think, Electoral Commission when it comes to you know, broadcasting allocations in Parliament that... The, this new Green registered party was a continuation of the Values Party. There should be entitled to some of the allocation that they would have been entitled to. So, to my mind, that shows a very clear sort of continuation, evolution of the Values into the Green Party. Um, they, they get 10% of the vote, but again, no seats in Parliament under MMP. And it's after you know Longy and Bulger's you know commitments to electoral reform referendums that we start this pathway. And in the lead up to MMP, that's where Jim Anderson, well, the new Labour Party, takes a pivotal role, uniting these smaller parties that frankly didn't have a hope in hell independently. Manamata Haki, uh, is it Doug Myers, Liberals, and they all come together and coalesce as the alliance. What was interesting was that. Jim brought the leadership, brought the um, organising power, new labour. Um, the, the sort of mythology is the Liberals brought the, the, the fundraising and the money with the sort of small business constituency, but the Greens brought the, the, the mass membership and sort of the new policy thinking. Well, it, was, it wasn't a done deal that the Greens would join the alliance. No, it was a, um, because they were quite aware that this wasn't an equal power relationship. They had outpolled New Labour yes. uh, in previous elections. They had the membership, they had policy thinking and genuine policy clashes. I mean, Jim Anderson was a traditional, you know, left-wing politician, like they used to call in the 70s, a concrete party. He believed in pouring more concrete and chopping down forests, you know, if it provided jobs and profit. Fitzsimmons was on the, um, she supported going into the alliance. She was number three on the alliance list. Uh, <coughs> And she gets in, but in a Bolger administration. And you write in the book the relationship between Anderson and um, Jeanette Fitzsimmons wasn't wasn't great. How did they get on, and why and, and why did they not last? Because by 1999, she's out on her own. 
She's she runs in Coromandel. She has the cup of tea with Helen Clark, metaphorically, if not literally, um, and she wins that seat. So so what happens between ninety six, they go in with the alliance, then by ninety nine they're they're out of the alliance, they're running on the the alliance doesn't die. Takes a couple of elections for them to be basically reduced to to, to Wigram. So what what changes? What happens in that time? Well, can we just go back one step because I think this is fascinating that she, apart from attending some meetings and offering some support, wasn't involved with the formation of the Greens in 1990. You know, she was late to values and was sort of late to the Greens. But within basically a, a year, she comes from an outsider, not involved, to becoming the the leader of the party, which I think shows her. Um, her manner and her strength of character that people wanted to, to, to follow her. And in, in the leadership election where the party was going into a debate if they were going to have leaders or not, or one remit on the table was every single member of the party, or 500, would be leader of the party. But basically she was uncontested as the female leader, which was the model they picked, this gender-based yep. co-leadership model. You know, uncontested, she was seen as this preeminent you know, figure within the party, and that's how she was able to become number three in the alliance list. But it was in that process of joining and working within the alliance that she became disillusioned. The list formation structure was less than ideal and less than opaque, and you know the, the new Labour Party that was used to the political manoeuvres and machinations and a larger political party was more adept at playing those games, Matt McCartan and oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, the policy he process... He is a Machiavellian guy. I like Matt, but yes. But, um, you know, the, the policy which pro, uh, platform, which was her job to stitch together, was difficult. You know, these quite disparate forces that had come together really for electoral uh, advantage rather than uh, bosom buddies when it comes to politics uh, was a challenge. But it was the personality of Jim that I think really jarred Jeanette. You know, from the Greens, which was uncomfortable with, with power and, and, and hierarchy, to the Alliance, which was a hierarchical enterprise where Jim saw himself as preeminent and, you know, perhaps wasn't the best communicator. I know um, the relationship with, with Sandra Lee from Manamotahaki, who was the, the deputy leader as well, w- was somewhat fought as well. So Jim saw himself as the top dog and everyone followed orders within a hierarchical party, whereas Jeanette wanted more of a... A, a green approach, you know, which is, you know, I, wouldn't, I don't want to be disparaging, but, you know, around the campfire singing Kumbaya. <laughs> she leads the Greens out of the alliance, 1999, um, they win the, the, the Coromandel seat. They've now got Helen Clark, um, and they're with Helen Clark for three elections. There were some wins and losses during that time, I think it's interesting that the most significant win was the ETS, which came within weeks of Helen Clark leaving office. There are, there are, there's a lot to, 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 to go through, but I think the most interesting and I think the most revealing is Corngate. So let's go back a bit. What, what, was, the, what was the intellectual opposition to genetic engineering? So there's, there's all, there was a moratorium on genetic engineering foods, the Greens were against genetic engineering for food. Why? Well, it wasn't just the Greens. I mean, this was a, a wider societal issue. And, you know, at this time, I'm getting arrested dressed as Ronald McDonald protesting <laughs> genetic engineering products. And, you know, it was part of mass marches. 
the issue had helped propel the Greens to... So we should say, uh, uh, this this is a point that you're now involved. So we're, we're, we're moving into an area where, where you're no longer a spotty teenager. You're actually, you're, you're in the mix. No, I am a spotty teenager doing this stuff. Okay, but, but right, you know, just, on, yep. on the streets, not, not with Jeanette. When it comes to the ETS at the end of the term in government, that's where I get involved with the Greens. But it was the issue that had propelled them to just pip across the 5% line in the 99 election. She had uncovered some you know, genetic engineering activities, um, which had you know, got front page press and um, really helped get them across the line in 99. But over the next three years, it just kept growing and growing as an issue. And you know, as a spotty teenager, I was with thousands of people marching you know, down Lampton but, Quay. But see, I don't... Because... I, I get uh, the limits for growth. I've read the book. I, I, I understand opposition to nuclear energy. Where I, where I struggle is, is why, you know, and Jeanette seems to pick her issues that she cares about. But when I look at genetic engineering for food, why, what is it about that topic? Because we'll come to the walkout in a minute. Because it was obviously something that they were prepared to, to roll the dice on. But what is it about genetic engineering food that 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 was such a not just within you know yourself and, and Jeanette, but but more widely, what what is it that made that even up up there with with um, CO two? Well, I can only sort of give my own personal analysis and perspective, but I think for Jeanette, this was a generation that had grown up sceptical of science. Um, They'd seen the impact of nuclear testing and nuclear weapons. You know, she had worked in the eighties on DDT, and um, you know, which is one of the key ingredients in Agent Orange, and the risk of chemicals and dioxins. Well, she she could claim some success for that being knocked on the head. As oh, well. absolutely. We didn't talk about that, but yes, um, in the book. But I think this was a generation, and you know, who is a leading proponent was sceptical of the role of science, and thought it had gone too far. But this is, again, why she was so successful and preeminent as a green leader. She had that intellectual nous to be able to understand chemical analyses and work on nuclear power and chemicals and, and pesticides. But she was also connected with the deep green constituency in the Greens. I mean, she had her hands in the ground as an organic farmer, you know, grow, raising animals, you know, growing her own vegetables, living sustainably in her eco-house. So there was that connection with the earth and, you know, a deep green philosophy as well. So that's how I think she came to this issue. A relatively new technology. Interesting how things you know um, align. That I think it was seventy two as well that the first genetic engineering technology started. Um, so again, across her life and her intellectual sort of adult life, this was an issue growing in importance. And the Greens really, and the wider movement really, jumped on the precautionary principle. This idea that it should be proven safe before. Uh, rolled out. Add in a, a mix of scepticism around big corporations and you know, mm. globalisation at this period as well. There was a deep distrust with science, technology, and particularly genetic technologies. Look, she was prepared to to, to burn down the government to uh, risk. So let's so let's talk about that. So let let's let's talk about so the um, the hazardous. Oh, what's the name? Has no hazardous substances and new <laughs> organisms uh, at Bill and Act. Uh, I'm a, so. So that was the issue that she was prepared to uh, to bring to to bring everything down on. So, what hazardous substances and new organisms, genetically modified um, organisms? Yep. Okay. So, so we're 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 coming up. We're to in two thousand two. She coming had, up. To, we're coming up to the election. And um, I mean, 
There was a sense that they had sold themselves too lightly to form the government in 99 and had got... Because they had a memorandum of understanding. No, it was a coalition and supply agreement. Which, 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 sorry, which, in 99. Sorry, yeah. And this is, you know, fascinating in the sense that um, on election night 99, she didn't know if she'd won Coromandel. The Greens had got, I think, 4.9%, so were under the threshold. Yeah. They had to wait, you know, for the special votes to come in that found she'd won the seat and got over 5%. But that meant, crucially, for Jim Anderson and Helen Clark, their majority had evaporated and they were reliant on the Greens to form a government despite having already stitched Sh- up an agreement. Sh- shades of what happened last month. Yeah, go Absolutely, on. but I think the Greens in their first experience, you know, only the second ever MMP election, sold themselves pretty lightly. They yeah. wanted to change the government and in hindsight they could have bargained and got a lot more than they did. So in 2002 there was a sense they had to really you know, use their power and leverage to, to get what they wanted. National was in a shambles with Bill English back then. The alliance was imploding over the um, war in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And um, then Nikki Hager's book comes out, you know, in the, in the so campaign. Hold on. So, so let, we'll, we'll, let's come back to that, because that, that was serendipitous for, for the party. So um, uh, we're coming up to the moratorium. The... Labour wants to to push this bull through, which would effectively end the moratorium on genetic engineered genetic engineered food. The Greens, everybody is looking at the Greens because the bill will not pass without Green support, and so the Greens have got the critical six votes or whatever it is. What do they do? Well, in the end, I think National ends up siding with Labour, and the legislation passes. But it was this crucial question for the Greens, and you know there were huge debates internally. Keith Locke was uh, the, the 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 Green MP was sort of arguing that this was a terrible strategy. You know, this was going to go through anyway with the votes of National. Why would they damage their relationship and crucially the ability to form a coalition with Labour in the looming election, where polls were showing that there would be a clear Labour Green majority, where they could get Green ministers for the first time, really uh, roll out Green policies over an issue that they were going to lose anyway. Uh, whereas Jeanette, I understand from talking to people who are involved in the debates, kept to and froing between the issue of how to decide, but in the end decided to throw her weight behind voting against this legislation. She had such mana within the party that her decision was crucial in influencing the votes of everyone else. And it was this, this funny story in politics that... Um, how just simple, you know, relationships and accidents can have such a big impact. But they, 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 they walked out of the house. Well, it was they had a plan that they, they, they gave a speech and then walked out of Parliament. Because they were in a governing relationship with the Labour Party, there always had been the intention to communicate what they were doing to Labour. 15 minutes to go. That was the bargain they struck. It was a, a distrustful relationship that they thought that if they gave Labour any more, immediately there would be a spin in the media counter the Greens. So they they settled on 15 minutes as an appropriate time to give enough respectful time as a heads up, but not enough time to be effective in spinning the narrative. But unfortunately, that crucial phone call never happened <laughs> never went through. because the debate went so fast and so Labour saw it as a big betrayal and you know some pretty harsh comments from both parties around about the positions of each other. Well, because there was also the comment, I think, from Heather Simpson, uh, was saying, are you going to move a vote of no confidence? That's, that's how badly the relationship had broken down. Yes, and remember that there had been lots of tensions you know, over the Iraq war and, you know... Um, uh, 
earlier, but also the way that Labor had treated Greens in the budget process, you know, from the Greens' perspective, was treated pretty poorly, treated as a bit of a sort of um, a, a hanger-on without much influence, and were basically told to, to lump it or leave it. So they had to fight very hard just to get attention and meetings with ministers, etc. So I think it was a Green Party that saw themselves as getting a bit of a raw deal and needing to sort of exercise their, their power and staging, um, and staging a walkout. Um, we then come up to the 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 the, the twenty two uh, election, and that was the slanging between. Well, not so much. Fitzsimmons was quite restrained in her criticism. Back, Helen Clark was just ripping into. <laughs> it was incredible, um, but then they get a lucky break with Corngate. With um with Nikki Hager's book with what six weeks to go before the election and, and John Campbell's um challenge to Helen Clark and what did the Helen Clark call him a little a creep? little creep yep <laughs> <laughs> well I mean who knows I mean it's an interesting question in hindsight you know was that book a positive intervention for Labour and Greens in the campaign I mean Labour had been polling incredibly high before the Seeds of Distrust book came out. Um, and then sort of plummeted, not to the extent of National did, but, you know, their, their vote reduced. But Does it, it surprise you looking back? Because we think about, I don't, I don't even know whether GE is legal or not in New Zealand. Um, I assume it is. But does it surprise you looking back that that issue, had, from relative obscurity, became such a defining massive issue and then it slipped back into obscurity again? No, it's not surprising. I mean, it is something I wouldn't go out and get arrested as part of direct action for anymore. Basically, the regime that was established after the moratorium was lifted, which was kind of a middle ground, right? Which was actually no, no release into the environment, only you know experiments in labs, a bit of a grey area around imported food and, and labelling, which still re exists. But that regime effectively is still in place more than 20 years on, which was kind of a, a compromise between those who wanted to release it everywhere and those who wanted to lock it away forever. Uh, yeah, and so this sort of truce has continued and the issues sort of died away. We've got a lot more sort of information now around the impact of it on the environment. Um, new technologies have come around, which meant it's a lot more sort of precision than it was uh, back in the, the well, 1990s. It's interesting, um, um, Nasim Talib, I think he's he's got a view that GE food is dangerous because you can screw it up and basically end the ecosystem. Um, and then you look at, you know, the question of whether people were mucking around with stuff in the lab and ran. So maybe there's maybe there's some validity to those concerns. Bill might but it was this defining issue of the early 2000s for the Green Movement. But over time, they this is where the 2005 election was such a struggle that there wasn't this keystone issue for them to campaign on. So they tried talking about peak oil and um, a whole, you know, the Zimbabwe cricket to a, a sort of grab bag of issues there was one no major narrative or issue to hang their hat on and again they shrunk back and nearly uh, died off and, and that campaign takes the intervention of the exclusive brethren um, but after that you know climate change becomes much more prominent and this is the the issue that the greens are campaigning on most elections since well because in 2005 it gets um, it gets pretty hairy for them so what's it was uh, five five point three percent in 2005 so that was that was a bit of a um, that was the last election she fought with Rod Donald 
uh, who then um, died subsequently, um, which must have been a bit of a... How old was he when he died? Oh, I, I can't remember, but it was pretty young, 50s or possibly even late 40s, but... Yeah, that's... Um, um, we didn't really get to talk about that, um, which is a shame. I'd have liked to... Two things before we wrap up. 2008, so the memorandum of understanding, I was getting confused, that was with the first key administration. Correct. Because we had the, the ETS, in the dying days of the Clark administration, the Greens get the um, the emissions trade, well, they don't get it, but the, but they were they were supportive of it, they didn't get everything that they wanted, didn't get agriculture, etc. Was that a win? The um, emissions trading scheme was Fitzsimmons happy with 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 that. I wouldn't say she was happy, but she would say it was the best deal that could be done, and was worth it um, to get it, you know, signed into law. I think what for her was the compelling reason to get it across the line. wasn't so much the legislation or the regime; it was the budget bids that accompanied it, and money for home insulation, for for energy projects. I think it was more than a billion dollars off the top of my head. She saw that as the deciding factor that that swung her. I mean, this was vigorous debates within the party, and Sue Bradford was leading the argument from the other side that they should not support it, and they had the casting vote. So. They were part of the government, but weren't in the sense that they were abstaining on confidence and supply, which gave the Labour, United Future, New Zealand First government the majority, as long as the Greens abstained. But any legislation needed their votes. She was also a government spokesperson, which was like a quasi-ministerial mm. innovation, which was frankly a failure and has never been replicated. But she saw it as yeah, as worth supporting. And again, you know, through her considerable mana and swayed the debate and, and won the, the caucus vote um, to subsequently see the National Party gut it. And, um, well, not, not, not completely, because, because this is what I wanted to touch on and, and maybe talk a little about contemporary politics. So she, she, they, the Greens, and, and, and at, at this point they've got to... So they do a memorandum, they get nine seats... In 2008, they get a memorandum of understanding with John Key. She keeps 330 million or something of the home insulation scheme. And we were talking before about the Green Party today. Uh, and because I, I see James Shaw, because you also write in the book that she was critical of some of the stuff Shaw does. Was that criticism public at the time? particularly over walker jumping and stuff? No, she had never wanted to, to damage the party publicly, but had been very vigorous and vocal internally. She was a team player, kept her opinions to herself. You found out the material and put it in the book. <laughs> and thank you for that. Um, but how would you... Would you agree with me that Shaw is the heir of Fitzsimmons in, in, in a lot of ways? That's how I see him. Is that how you see him? Well, do you want to explain that a little more? In, in what respects? So... You describe, you write in the book that the only time Fitzsimmons was critical of another MP was she threw shade at Winston Peters for failing to read um, some briefing notes uh, and that otherwise she, she avoided uh, personal criticism attacks even when she was subject to the most horrendous abuse. Um, she always kept a high moral ground. She was always very focused on the environmental issues. She didn't seem particularly interested in, in international issues. She, she, you know, she was focused on a relatively narrow range of environmental 
issues. And I see James Shaw as very much the same. He's more than happy to work with National to get um, the carbon zero stuff over the line. Uh, he seems perfectly comfortable in that environment. But we see, I think, the, the Krasio-Kanowski divergence happening inside. So when I look at some of the other members of the Green parties who seem much more focused currently on international rather than domestic and environmental issues, I kind of see a similar dynamic evolving. Um, and I'm wondering whether the if if Shaw is the is the heir to Fitzsimmons, has the party moved away from maybe where she she would have wanted it to go? Well, they're similar in, in tone. I mean, Shaw doesn't make, you know, um, doesn't abuse people and doesn't, you know... Um, is he's pretty, a gentleman. He's a gentleman. He's very polite in debate. Uh, plays the, the ball, not the person. Um, similar maybe in approaching issues very seriously. You know, there, there's no sort of great theatrical, rhetorical flourishes or, you know, turns of phrase or witty you know, statements like Winston Peters might make. Um, perception, I think they're both seen by... Um, maybe right or centre for voters as the more um, pleasant face of the Green Party or acceptable face of the Green Party. I think both the, both those two politicians would reject that they're, you know, see, they're, they're right wing or that the environment is the only issue that matters. I think both Shaw and Fitzsimons would say that social issues are integrally related with mm. environmental ones. And this is the founding charter of the Green Party with four principles of which ecological wisdom and social responsibility are co-equal. You know, mm. there's, one's not supreme versus the other. You know, I think Jeanette was pretty socialist. And actually, that limits to growth view. I, I found this wonderful scribbled line on a bit of paper I found in the archives where she said, it's a finite world and we need to learn how to share better which I thought was a wonderful sort of articulation of how environmentalism and, you know, was the foundation of her sort of socialism and, you know, um, perhaps more left-wing politics. I think Russell Norman might say that he was the heir to Jeanette Fitzsimons as well, someone who was, you know, very intellectual like Fitzsimons, interested in some of the same issues, had maybe more of a sort of pugnacious political style. Um, but also he, he wore, a, you make the point, he wore a suit, whereas Nando's Tantrals drove a skateboard. There was a there was a difference in style, and I think it was more than just a difference in style. I think there was a difference in substance. And the green Party... sorry, a substantive distance. Not and wasn't throwing shade, but I think mm -hmm. there is a, a a very different type of approach. And I see, and you you could be right that um, um Norman perhaps was a a, a bit of air in um in in that respect. Um, and I do I do wonder how. Um, if she was still leading the party today, how she would view the emphasis. I think she would be more comfortable where James Shaw is and his worldview than he would be with what I see as a much more international focused from 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 the rest of her from the rest of the caucus. As someone who had worked her entire career on the environment and you know, at the end of it was pretty disillusioned with the state of the environment and New Zealand and global initiatives to deal with it and then you know, physically put her body on the line trying to stop oil drilling you know, miles off the after coast. After she left office. After she left office. You know, she wanted a much more sort of strident, vigorous Green Party really twisting Labour's arm. And this is where some of the disagreements in the seventeen twenty term, where the Greens were in confidence and supply with Jacinda Ardern's Labour government, 
I think she would have preferred the Greens in their first experience having ministers to make to dif- have had differentiated from Labour and more vocally criticised where they disagreed. Um, and this was one of the disagreements with Shaw on issues like the, the Electoral Integrity Act, the, the Walker jumping law. Um, I think you know, she was urging the party to reject it and to vote against it, despite it being a New Zealand First coalition agreement. So there were definitely tensions, and she. It's always different when you're, you know, on the stage versus you know watching from the sidelines or true. backstage. That's true. Every it's, it's easy to be a critic as opposed to the man in the um, arena, as Roosevelt said. Um, I just want to. I want to finish off. I struggle with this. Um, I think this is from a valedictory speech. Um, Fitzsimmons said, or you quote in the book, I never set out to be an MP or a Green Party leader. I was pushed into it uh, under that John Lennon maxim that life is what happens to you when you're making other plans. I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up and I am still not sure I found the answer yet. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I think she did want to be an MP. She was interested in leadership. You see that she came back, she ran in Remuera, she was interested, the values parties imploded, she took nine years off. When the opportunity was there, she got back involved, she got elected, she she was interested in leadership. I I think this false modesty is the wrong t- uh, t- uh, um, description. Um, I think she was very ambitious. I think she knew what she wanted to do. I think she could be utterly ruthless when 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 necessary, but doing so in a way that, because you can see from some of that earlier pictures, there is that there is that steel mag- magnolia aspect to it, and I think she has been a little bit disingenuous to say, oh no no no, I I didn't really want to be pushed into that. Am I am am I am I misreading that? Oh, I think, you know, there's always a bit of political storytelling and, and myth-making, and I think maybe what she's referring to there... I mean, you're right, she was definitely ambitious. She was steely. She could, um, you might say, um, hard, and I, I think ruthless is too far, but, you know, she, her interactions with some of her colleagues, she could make tough decisions and communicate that to, to someone, which would um, be very well, hard. Well, look at the way she got Norman into Parliament. She had the three other people had to be, you know told to stand in front of a bus yep um and she got him in so don't tell me that was all cuddles yeah that's right um she however i think across her life and maybe this is what she's talking about it's sort of the sense of serendipity that she's had all these amazing different experiences you know she didn't just stick in one lane or do one job you know she kind of went with I don't want to sound too hippie here but went where the universe was sort of telling her so yes. um, I mean she didn't spend the 80s plotting and scheming to rebuild the values or start the Green Party again and you know she again came in later on when it was precipitous pre- how do you say that word I know the word you mean I yeah. can't say it now uh, fortuitous yes uh, at that time you know she wasn't um, plotting and scheming and you know she could have been a lot more sort of focused if she was you know uh, relentlessly, you know, focused on power or a ministerial role. You know, she would have, could have made decisions very differently, and she was quite prepared to but put the, her principles above yeah, power. Yeah, that, that 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 is true, and I think I think that speaks volumes for her. Um, and the Corngate thing, and, and there was a couple of other examples where she said, "No, this is what I'm going to do, and if it costs me everything, I don't care." Um, and so I think she was she was a um, she was a principled politician in a way that very few people are. 
today, and I and I, I respect that enormously um, about her. I you know I see parallels perversely with David Seymour, who I think is also a he is utterly driven by by what he wants to achieve, um, and is prepared to do what is required to to get there. And I um, I think I write in a column about her. I believe I believe in ideas, um, and I admire enormously people who, and they don't. You know, her ideas are not my ideas, but but she was a woman of ideas. She thought deeply, and she was prepared to put a body on the line to to achieve them. I, I think I think that's enormously admirable. Um, we've run way over time. I'm, um, I'm sorry about that. Thank you for uh, for indulging me. Thank you for writing the book. It is it is um, it's not quite a heliography. Um, um, I but I think you you delve into her life. You you. And there are lessons there as well, I think, for for other people. You don't need to be um, a lefty to to appreciate the book and to appreciate her. Oh, well, thanks Thank for you. the opportunity to, to talk about it. It was a pleasure for me sort of researching and finding out all this personal stuff that I didn't know about and maybe a, more of a sense of what made her tick. And I agree, I think she is a bit of a, a, an exemplar for politicians and particularly in the social media age where everything's so divided and, and we can't find seem to find consensus she was someone who was able to be focused on the evidence on the facts build bridges maybe appeal to our better angels of our nature you know so polite and in political discourse which um if we could get a little bit closer to that i think we'd be better off thank you very much for your time